Now, you, you said in one of your emails that you have done uh, quite a bit of research into the history of, of simultaneous interpreting, um, particularly, and earlier you said you, you wanted to become a, a practitioner first. So at some point, I suppose, the, the interest in research came, came back up, or uh, how, how did that happen? I always thought that I did not want to write yet another dissertation on the use of the definite article in something or other and 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 you know frankly that was my always my my premise and my um aversion to to research absolutely yeah. <laughs> having seen too much of that type of hmm. but then it so happened that a few years ago i stumbled across uh, an archive that uh and when i when i saw it when i opened up those documents i realized that I was looking at something extremely important to our profession. It was almost like stumbling across a treasure chest full of gold coins. What it was, was um, a uh, digital archive um, of uh, Edward Filene who was uh, the founder of uh, Filene's department store and, and the chain Filene's basement in the U.S. until recently, it's now, it's now closed. Um, but he was also the um, inventor, so to speak, of simultaneous interpreting systems back in the 1920s. And um, among other things, he was also um, a founder of the uh, American Credit Union movement and the first uh, uh, chairman of the National Credit Union Association. So the archives of uh, the Credit Union Association, CUNA, in Madison, Wisconsin, have this uh, folder on uh, on uh, the uh, uh, telephonic interpreting system that Filene invented in the 20s. And then I started looking at those documents and I saw uh, the, 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 the original patent that he took out uh, the, for the Filene Finley uh, interpreting system. I saw uh, his correspondence with uh, people like uh, Thomas Edison, uh, with uh, <laughs> Watson, Thomas Watson, the founder of IBM. Um, amazing things, you know, and, and the story, his interviews, Uh, or interviews with him, um, uh, somebody at the League of Nations and at the ILO uh, in the 30s, uh, talking to him, uh, and he retelling the, the history, the story of how he uh, invented simultaneous interpreting, what led to it. And I thought, this is incredible. This is absolutely incredible. And um, but then I encountered, um, I found this book, I started reading on, on the subject, I read his biography, and then I found a book by Jesus Baigori Halon from Paris to Nuremberg, which at the time was available only in uh, French and Spanish. It's now available in uh, in English. Um, and, and, and I started looking at that book and I said, oh, everything that I wanted to say is already said about this. <laughs> I, got <in laughs> touch, I got in touch with Jesus and... Um, Uh, we started uh, communicating by Skype regularly at some point, um, and he encouraged me to, uh, you know, to uh, to dig deeper into that research and and to uh, to see what you know what are the nuggets in that particular archive that we could find. Um, 
and so I started doing that and it at the same time led me to um, start to to to, um, to asking the question of what was happening in Russia Soviet Russia at that very same time in the, in the 1920s because um, so the story of Filene uh, and the League of Nations and the ILO is the Western story and yet there was the Communist International the Comintern uh, which was the nemesis of the League of Nations um, and kind of existed at that very same time and also functioned as an international organization and also used interpretation and interpreters and simultaneous interpretation. And uh, I remember there was uh, an article in one of the uh, uh, Russian interpreting translated journals in the 60s by um, uh, Yevgeny Hoffman, Goffman, who was uh, one of the uh, Soviet interpreters at Nuremberg who um, uh, briefly told the story of simultaneous interpreting in the USSR, where he mentioned that for the first time, simultaneous interpreting in the USSR was used at the 6th Congress of the Comintern in 1928, and that the uh, 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 newspaper Krasnaya Niva from that year uh, shows a picture of interpreters wearing headphones, and... Um, and that was just a brief mention of that. And it's sort of that quote was, you know, went around the different research articles on the history. Everybody was just kind of going back to that one sentence quote. But by then, you know, we're now in a different world and you can actually go to the library. And unlike the Soviet times where you could not ever see old newspapers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> some reason they were classified. Yeah. Yes, not anymore. So, you know, a quick look in the library, of course, reveals the front page of Krasnaya Niva from 1928 with a very nice picture of an interpreter. Uh, no headphones, but a microphone around, hanging around the person's neck. And an article, um, what was it? Technology at the Service of the Communist Revolution. First mm. time in the world, it says. Uh, simultaneous uh, interpreters are speaking simultaneously with the speaker, interpreting into multiple languages at the Sixth Congress of the Communist International, etc., etc. And so, of course, once you see this, you have to dig deeper, right? And of um, this is where curiosity really led me on an incredible journey uh, with the help of my sister, who um, actually spent a lot of time in the archives because I was only able to uh, visit, you know, once every few months for a short time and, and then kind of look at uh, documents in a more pinpointed way. But but she was the one doing the, the sifting through the myriads of documents that, that were there in the, in the archives. And... Uh, we saw... We, uh, we saw uh, pictures and documents about that time period, about interpretation, how it was organized. Um, and uh, there was even some information about the very first, the Russian Filene, the very first inventor of simultaneous interpreting method and a proposed system mm -hmm. in, in Russia. 
So if you think that um, the original method proposed by Filene was a little bit unusual by modern standards, because what he proposed in 1925 was to have... Uh, an interpretation booth, interpreter sitting in the booth, um, but instead of interpreting from what the interpreter was hearing, it would be the stenographer who would be listening to the original, and the interpreter was supposed to be trained to read the stenographic notes. Oh, I see. And, uh, <laughs> so, so using that stenographer as a relay hmm. and, and then interpret. Uh, so this was the original which it was modified, but it was that was the original idea proposed by Colleen. So if you think that was a little bit strange, imagine how strange the Russian proposal was. It was proposed by a physician, a medical doctor, by the name of uh, Epstein, Epstein, who um, uh, suggested that you would have a three-interpreter method of simultaneous. So you would have three booths, one interpreter in each, and each interpreter only takes care of a very small segment of what the interpreter hears. So the speech begins, and the first sentence is interpreted by interpreter one in booth A uh, consecutively. So the interpreter listens to the chunk that he is comfortable receiving, then switches on a light or a buzzer, which signals the interpreter in the next booth to start listening, all the while the interpreter in the first booth is interpreting, and then the second interpreter finishes listening to his chunk, passes it on, passes on the relay to the third interpreter, and by that time the first interpreter will have finished his or her segment, the second interpreter starts, and then the third interpreter starts, and then goes back to the first one. So... Interesting. Sort of simultaneous with each of them doing consecutive of very short segments. Now, I can imagine that once they tested it, it did not work that way either because by 1928, <laughs> everything converged to a very different method, uh, pretty much similar to the modern chuchotage, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then it developed further on, and it's interesting to learn when the first interpretation booths started appearing. And um, I actually have an amazing photograph from the Moscow archives of interpretation booths that date back to 1934, and they look like, uh, like canvas tents, huge funnel microphone that the interpreter speaks into. No earphones again, but the shape, the shell shape of the uh, booth that's facing the podium, kind of channels the sound into it, because they're in the first row, in the front row, um, and they're interpreting into these final microphones to uh, not to interfere with each other. But um, yeah, and and we even got to the archives of uh, radio and television and found footage. So it's not just photos; it's also moving pictures. <laughs> and and I have created. Um, a, um, a presentation out of it, which uh, I did at the uh, ATA conference in Miami in 2015, then um, recently in New York uh, for the Nuremberg uh, Expo, Birth of the Profession. And um, so I'm really taking this show on the road because I think 
that one thing is to, uh, and I did also write a chapter in uh, in a book, uh, there's a new insights in the history of interpreting that Hisuri uh, Halon and Kyoko uh, Takeda edited. And so I have a chapter in there, and the, it's called At the Dawn of Simultaneous Interpreting in the USSR. But um, how many copies uh, of Benjamin's literature are sold around the world? You know, not many, to be honest. Um, and and, and, and I think it's important to um, to popularize that history because even interpreters uh, nowadays, a lot of them think that simultaneous started at Nuremberg. Going back to the roots, to the early history, I think is very important because this is when we really learn our roots, where, where we came from, why conference interpreting became simultaneous interpreting. You know, the, the, the introduction of multiple languages, you know, the democratization of uh, international conferences at the turn of the century. Basically, um, after the uh, Paris Peace Conference, right, at the end of World War One, this is really the start of conference interpreting in the modern 20th century sense of the world, of the word. Um, and who knows, you know, maybe uh, it was the profession of the 20th century, and maybe we're now seeing... And the tail end of it. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, but but I think you're completely right because I I did look into it a little bit for a for a talk I gave two uh, two years ago. So I think, um, and and I found it striking that I mean this this was more about uh, the Comintern and and uh, Nuremberg as well. Um, and I tried to show that um, especially the people at at Nuremberg. Um, Actually, it was a very tough job for them, not only because the technology wasn't as good as it is um, today, but also because some of them had been, you know, victims or they had lost family members to the to the Nazis, and they still had to interpret that day in and day out for weeks or months. And um, and I saw some similarities to to nowadays that that people refuse to even engage with new technological developments. And and of course, back at the day, as you know, there were many people who said, "Well, simultaneous will never work," and they are just you know telephonists, and and they had these bad words for these people that uh, actually, as, as you rightfully said, uh, sort of almost created a new profession or, or brought the profession to a to a whole new level. So I, I found that there were a few interesting um, parallels. But but what I was wondering, we, we know quite a bit about Filene and, and Finlay and, and the other people involved. And you mentioned this um, Mr. Epstein, the, and he, he was a, a medical doctor. Do we, do we know more about him and why he did this? And, and were there any other people involved that we know something about nowadays? We know about um, him. Well, we, we really know very little about uh, Ep Epstein. I'm, I'm going to use the Russian uh, way of pronouncing his name uh, just to you know differentiate him from all the other Epsteins and Epsteins that <laughs> There are a few, yes. <laughs> so, so Epstein, we uh, we know he was a physician because at the time, um, uh, the uh, term uh, doctor would could not be associated. The title of doctor could not be associated with a uh, doctor of uh, philosophy or a uh, academic degree as we have now. Um, at the time in uh, Russia, those people would be called professor. And so the only person who could have the title of doctor could be a medical doctor. And um, from that kind of realization, um, I tried to look in the archives of uh, the medical world uh, at that same time. And we found that a medical doctor with the same initials, uh, V. Epstein, 
was working for the uh, Kremlin Polyclinic, so the Kremlin Hospital. And it is my theory that he might have been stationed at the uh, Comintern Congresses as uh, part of the little on-site, um, you know, emergency medical unit for delegates. Yeah. And he would be observing what was happening with consecutive interpretation, the same way as Filene was observing consecutive. Yeah. At the League of Nations. Yeah. Right. And being very frustrated with, uh, with the slowness of the process. Again, the very, the very same ideas are echoing in, in his memo to the executive committee of the Comintern from 1925, precisely the same week as Filene sends his letter to the, to the uh, um, uh, General Secretary of the League of Nations. Yeah. Um, in wow. The but, um, and, and echoing exactly the same, the same issues with, with consecutive uh, and proposing a, a system and method that would speed it up, that would uh, uh, use technology, that would turn this into a very different thing. And, um, and so he, just like Filene, was working with uh, uh, Finley, who was uh, his engineer, the same way Epstein was working with uh, an engineer uh, by the name of uh, Goron. So Garon was a um, young engineer at the Moscow Telephone Exchange, and he was tasked with helping implement uh, Epstein's system in actual life. Uh, and so they, uh, but but Garon is a very known historical figure, actually. And there, there's a Wikipedia article about him. Uh, he is known mostly. Uh, to our colleagues in the audiovisual world, because he was, um, well, he ended up being the um, um, sort of the father of Soviet hi-fi systems, if you will. You know, the the, the first tape recorders, the uh, the LP records, uh, Melodia uh, factory that produced uh, LP records in in the Soviet Union. So he founded that. Uh, he founded also um, a recording studio um, on, on uh, Moscow radio, and there were so so he was the father of uh, of, of radio. He was also uh, behind the uh, the Soviet wired radio, which was something that uh, would have you know it was like a um, a well every Russian house or apartment had a little radio unit that was plugged into the wall and that would be switched on automatically at 6 o'clock in the morning with the national anthem. And, uh, people would wake up with it and yeah. <laughs> people would go to sleep with it. I didn't know that. It was also the same type of wired radio that was also installed outside in the streets with the huge loudspeakers. So if you can imagine that, so this was that, uh, so Garon was you know, behind that technology. And again, his if you when you start reading his biography, there's always a, a line somewhere that in 1928 he was uh, in charge of developing the first Soviet system for simultaneous interpreting at the Comintern, and yet nobody paid attention to line. I guess nobody from our world, from the interpreting world, ever looked at it from that perspective or or had the interest of looking into his biography, but. Um, so I tried to, and, and he passed away not so long ago in the late 80s, um, and there were still people 
who were his students because he taught at the Moscow uh, Radio Electrical Institute, and they were, his students were still were still alive, of course, and and um, and I and I got in touch with one of them who is now the uh, chair of that department, um, who said, "Yes, well, God, want to explain to us when we were students." how he put that system together, and he worked with Epstein, who was a physician, a medical doctor, and he confirmed that. (laughs) So that closes the circle. That that completed the circle. Unfortunately, we know really very little about Epstein. And uh, there's one photo, which actually I have also in my book, uh, in my chapter, of uh, three people uh, standing in front of uh, this unit, which is, I guess, the the sound rack for, for the interpretation system and testing the sound. And uh, one of them, uh, I believe, is Epstein, but it's not entirely clear. So hopefully, we'll, you know, in time, uh, we will be able to find more information about him. But uh, at this point, it seems like we've hit a dead end a little bit. But is, do you still have archive material or, or, or do you still have resources that are not that you haven't gone through, that you're still working on, or is, is this is this it now? Uh, this I think this is it for the Russian part, but uh, there's um, an, another interesting branch, uh, which you might be interested in, uh, that uh, started developing uh, quite recently. Um, as, we, as I was looking at Filene's uh, correspondence on the acquisition of uh, patents, for his system before he was before he sold his invention to IBM, he wanted to make sure that he got patents for it, and he took out the U.S. patent and he took out patents in Switzerland and France, uh, and then when it came to Germany, uh, the German patent office uh, wrote back to him saying, "Well, we cannot give you a patent because we already have something like this." Oh, yes, and what was it? It was uh, the Siemens Halske system, Siemens and Halske, AG, right? That system um, was used at, in 1930, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Second World Power Congress in Berlin. And it might have been the first time when it was used there. Um, and, and I have some material about that. But um, the interesting thing is that um, Elke um, Limberger, I don't know if you know her. Uh, call it, I think of her the is, name. Yeah. Um, also uh, behind the uh, Nuremberg uh, Expo project, the birth of the profession. Um, so um, I, I, I wrote that to her, that little piece from, uh, because I had a little exchange with the uh, chief uh, historian of Siemens. Mm-hmm. And um, I received some uh, technical specifications of that particular system. But then um, she and her colleague, I guess, went to the Siemens archives to explore deeper. And uh, there is now correspondence from Siemens, from Mr. Siemens himself to Filene, telling him that uh, their company started looking at this uh, from 1918, much, much earlier. We're tracing this back to 1925, and now this is 1918. So who knows? I mean, this history is, keeps being pushed back, back further and further. This is still this is something that needs to be explored. I mean, I don't speak German at all, so it's uh, definitely not for me to do it. But 
uh, other colleagues, I'm sure, should should go and explore this because uh, this is just another wave. Um, and and so you know, we were I was looking at it as the Russian American kind of thing, but it's not just that. So there's there's the German connection as well. <laughs> Yeah, it's, fasc it's uh, fascinating. It's a bit like genealogy because I've, I've done this for a while and looked into family history and then you sort of, you keep digging and you find another link and you go back even earlier and earlier and earlier. But it's, it's, it's extremely fascinating. Absolutely. It's like the thing they used to say about uh, Russia in, during Perestroika. It was quite a, <laughs> a famous saying at the time that many countries have unpredictable future, but Russia has unpredictable past. <laughs> yeah. 